Welcome to the AI Events Podcast, your front row seat to exciting scholarly debates on pressing national issues. With new episodes every week, never miss out on the conversation and stay up to date on topics important to you. To hear more, check out our other channels related to education, domestic policy, and international issues. everyone and welcome to the American Enterprise Institute. I'm Mackenzie Eaglin. I'm a senior fellow here at AEI for quite some time. It's my pleasure to welcome Major General Retired Arnold Panaro, a good friend and colleague of mine for many years to AEI, to launch his latest book. It's not his first, so I'm going to need tips from him pretty soon. I guess I should start my own. But his latest book, The Ever-Shrinking Fighting Force, we're going to talk about that this morning. I'll be joined about midway through our event with former Missouri Senator Jim Talent, who will have a panel discussion with me and General Panaro afterward. I want to briefly introduce General Panaro, even though I'm sure if you're tuning in, you're, he's, he's a well-known commodity to you, as he is to so many in Washington, D.C. He's probably one of the most respected experts in national security in Washington, leaders of both parties, leaders at the Pentagon, uniformed and civilian, pretty much all of us call him for advice all of the time and for information. He obviously has an extensive experience in uniform and as well as his own family members, many whom are here today, so welcome to all of you. Former Marine, former staff director on the Senate Armed Services Committee, and of course in industry working at SAIC and as chairman of the National Defense Industrial Association. And where I've met him over the years also, encountering him running numerous policy and other boards for the, the Defense Department, including the Reserve Forces Policy Board, Defense Business Board, and other commissions. His new book is perfectly timed <clears throat> as Capitol Hill is debating President Biden's first defense budget and considering not whether, but how much money to add to that request, which is considered insufficient, and what to do about that insufficiency. So I'm very excited to have him here this morning. And then I'll briefly introduce our colleague, Senator Jim Talent, with whom Arnold and I have worked very closely over many years in different think tank capacities. Currently, he's at the Bipartisan Policy Center. He has also done a, a tour here at AEI. Again, he was former senator from Missouri, where Jim and I worked together on the Hill, not, of course, as a politician, but as a staffer. He was a Sea Power chairman where we worked together. And Jim is also on numerous commissions and panels, like, for example, the, the China Commission, and weighs in regularly with defense leadership on issues of great import to national security. So, Jim, thank you for, for joining us today. We'll have some fun in a little bit with you. So without further delay, we've gone through everything that we need to do. General Panaro, I'm going to stop talking and let you take over this show. Congratulations on your new book. Well, first, I'd like to thank Mackenzie Eaglin and the American Enterprise Institute for organizing and hosting this event in this very historic location to discuss the challenges in securing America's military future. And thank all of you that have joined us, both here in person and online. For years, as Mackenzie indicated, I've had the privilege of working with and learning from Mackenzie, one of our nation's top and most influential national security experts. I've also been privileged to know and learn from Senator Jim Talent, whose leadership and contributions to a strong national defense continue to be so compelling. I want to underscore that my book is dedicated to those like Mackenzie Eaglin and Senator Talent, the active duty military, the Guard and Reserve, defense civilians, contractors, and experts who come to work every single day 
in the Department of Defense and the Congress to do the best job they can for our warfighters and for our taxpayers. But as former Secretary of Defense Bill Perry once told me, bad processes beat good people every day. And we have a proliferation of bad processes that are broken, totally broken, in both the Pentagon and the Congress. So as the focus shifts from Afghanistan and Iraq towards what comes next, leaders in the DOD, Congress, and the think tank community have a tremendous opportunity. We're at an inflection point in national security because business as usual and adherence to the bad processes will allow China, our pacing threat, to continue to advance militarily, economically, politically, and scaringly technologically, all to our short and long-term detriment. Despite defense spending levels that in constant dollars are higher than the peak of the Reagan buildup, America's defense capabilities can now be characterized as an ever-shrinking fighting force, hence the title of my book. Today, the United States military has one million fewer active duty personnel, 35 to 40% fewer major combat units, such as the Army Brigade Combat Teams, Navy Battle Force ships, and United States Air Force Combat Aircraft than the U.S. had at the time of the Reagan buildup. Just since 9-11, active duty military personnel have decreased by over 100,000 people, while the civilian government workforce in the Department of Defense has increased by 136,000 people. Cutting warfighters and adding bureaucrats does not strike fear into our adversaries. No matter where you look, this shrinking trend, as the budget has grown, has continued consistently through many administrations, both Democrat and Republican, and persists today. This extremely alarming trend is the result of what I call the ticking time bombs of national security. The Department of Defense is clearly not getting enough bang for the buck for the dollars it spends. Because of DOD's mammoth size, even marginal improvements and reforms can have an outsized impact. Therefore, Anywhere the department can be more efficiently managed, improved, or streamlined, attempts must be made to do so on a continual basis. The ever-shrinking fighting force does not advocate reducing the defense budget top line, but rather urges the Pentagon and Congress to get more bang for the buck for the dollars they approve by reforming the bad processes. We should care more about outputs than inputs, and the Pentagon should measure those outputs with performance goals that ensure DOD is better, faster, and cheaper than our adversaries, particularly China, whose purchasing power today is now greater than ours. China gets more bang for their yuan than the United States does for our dollars. Let me go through the ticking time bombs. One of them that contributes to the ever-shrinking fighting force is DOD's broken acquisition system that continues to cost more, take longer, and produce less. DOD does not employ successful business practices and processes when it comes to its huge expenditures for goods and services, supplies, and equipment. Despite the fact that American industry has proven conclusively that significant savings are possible in providing the needing cutting-edge technologies. 
In total, the current federal procurement data indicates that DOD is spending about $320 billion a year on goods and services, supplies, and equipment, a total sum that measures more than all the other government agencies combined and consumes over 8% of the total federal budget with the unimpressive result of spend more, take longer, get less. Despite these large expenditures, this bureaucratic system now takes over 20 years from contract award to operational capability for combat aircraft and other major weapons, despite the fact that entire process used to only take five years, which, by the way, is China's current timeline for what they're producing. In the last five years, China has produced 105 ships in that same period of time the U.S. produced 26. Compare these timelines to the commercial world, where it takes less than six years to produce a new aircraft in less than three years to produce a new ground vehicle. Both the unit cost and the life cycle cost of modern weapons are also off the charts. In Desert Shield and Desert Storm, the Air Force active and reserve components had 4,468 fighters. Today, the Air Force has 2,141, down 50%. The Navy had 573 battle force ships at the peak of the Reagan buildup. Today, we have 293, down 45%. The unit cost of the newer weapons have increased by hundreds of percentages over the ones they are replacing, and additionally, their life cycle costs are now over 50% higher than the earlier models. DOD's acquisition process are hampered by long-standing negative factors, including gold-plated requirements that are frequently changed and in many cases are unrealistic from both a technical and a cost standpoint. I have said tongue-in-cheek, that if DOD could somehow get someone to support it, they would want a nuclear-powered tank that could fly itself to the battlefield. DOD also consistently fails to meet schedules, performance goals, and plan quantities that they wanted to purchase. They're plagued by significant cost overruns, not in the tens of millions, but in the billions. And there is inconsistent management and poor accountability. In addition, the acquisition process is suffering under massive layers of bureaucracy, as well as layers of rules and regulations. There are over 175,000 people working in the acquisition workforce, and the stack of rules, regulations, directives, and don'ts number in the tens of thousands of pages. While the acquisition leaders in both the Obama and Trump administrations, including Ash Carter, Frank Kendall, Ellen Lord, and others, attacked these problems and implemented positive change, it's not how far we've come. We've come this far. It's how far we still need to go. Uh, there's much more work to be done here. We also need to focus on the emerging technologies that are key for our country's economy, not just defense. This includes microelectronics, artificial intelligence, 5G, hypersonics, and autonomy, just to name a few. Our acquisition system must adapt to become more agile to keep up with these emerging technologies and to include companies that are highly competitive in the commercial space. Another ticking time bomb is the excessive amount of money tied up in DOD's massive, layered, and inefficient overhead and support functions. Here, we are spending more and getting more, which is exactly the opposite of the needed outcome. According to DOD's FY20 Defense Manpower Requirements Report, DOD's support functions represent 43% of its total workforce. When this ratio is applied to the total annual DOD budgets, these costs total over $309 billion if they represented a gross domestic product, it would be one of the largest in the world. DOD says defense-wide spending has grown from 5% of the budget to just under 20% of the budget, 
But I believe that's underestimated, and I can document that the all-in costs are much closer to 30%. If you include all military personnel, civilian, and estimated contractors, there are over 902,000 people working in the DOD headquarters and agencies, joint staff, combatant commands, and service headquarters and field activities. The directly related cost for these organizations exceeds $137 billion. And by the way, DOD does a poor job keeping track of and controlling their headquarters number. From the original 45 people, as described by Secretary Farstall when he assumed office in 1947, the OSD staff has increased approximately 100 times. DOD has added undersecretaries, assistant secretaries, and now has over 60 deputy assistant secretaries positions. The OSD staff today, when you include full-time reservists, detail, and contractors, is actually well over 500,000 people, though they advertise it as only 2,500 people. And by the way, the 5,000 number does not include the Pentagon IG, Washington Headquarters Services, and the Pentagon and Force Protection Agency. The same uncontrolled growth has occurred in the Joint Staff. Today, the Joint Staff, when including the separately reported Office of the Chairman, numbers nearly 5,000 military civilians and contractors since 1958. The size of the Joint Staff has increased by a factor of 10. When Secretary Gates established the Joint Forces Command in 2010, a recommendation I actually made from the Defense Business Board, the military assigned to Joint Forces Command over 2,000 people were reassigned to the Joint Staff. This is one of the reasons there's no accurate headcount. When one agency is dissolved, another organization is created to absorb the shock. This trend of uncontrollable growth is also present in the defense agencies, where we've gone from one defense agency in 1952 to 28 defense agencies in 2021, with 170,000 people, not including the tens of thousands of contractors, spending in excess of $120 billion. Many of these defense agencies are large business entities that would rank higher than the largest for-profit contractors in terms of how much business these defense agencies conduct with DOD, yet most do not incorporate applicable world-class business practices. Regarding defense facilities, DOD maintains one of the largest property books in the world, well over $880 billion worth, over 562,000 facilities, on more than 4,800 sites in all 50 states, seven U.S. territories, and 40 foreign countries. The annual cost to operate and maintain these facilities is estimated at over $30 billion a year, but we know there is a significant room for saving. For example, DOD has consistently estimated that up to 20% of its facilities are excess, but neither DOD nor the Congress has exhibited the political will to make any major improvements here. McKinsey has actually been a real leader over the years with many reports and articles on how to cut the tail and increase the tooth, something that I am also advocating throughout my career and highlight in, in the book, The Ever-Shrinking Fighting Force. A third ticking time bomb is the fully burdened and lifetime cost of the volunteer force with its outdated personnel management, compensation, and retirement programs. What makes the lifetime personnel cost particularly worrisome is the department has no idea of what they really are because they do not calculate or track the fully burdened and lifetime costs of active military reserve or full-time civilians. They just basically look at their annual pay. They don't look at the, the fully burdened cost. In the last 20 years, the average fully burdened cost for a mid-career individual on active duty has gone from $80,000 a year to the current estimate of close to $400,000 per year today.
factors contributing to the fully burdened costs are the support structures we provide to service members and their families, such as the cost to recruit them and provide skill training, the military health program that's gone from $17 billion to $52 billion a year, a taxpayer-subsidized grocery chain, military dependent schools, a child care system, housing, and much more. Even more concerning, the data points exclude over $58 billion in retirement payments to military retirees and their survivors paid each year by the Department of Treasury. Today, we have 2.3 million retirees, military retirees, compared to the 1.3 million troops on active duty, and this gap is widening every year and soaking up, as I said, huge amounts of percentage of the DOD's $52 billion health care costs. There are 10 million beneficiaries of that health care system, of which 5.6 million are retirees and their dependents, using about 65% of that total cost. Further complicating the problem is DOD's antiquated military pay system, which is based on time and grade and longevity versus skills and performance, something the creators of the all-volunteer force in 1973 recommended implementing. The department retains a pre-all-volunteer force military retirement system established when life expectancy was 66, when today for retirees it's 84 years. The system encourages our military to leave after 20 years, even though this is when they are most productive and experienced, and then pays them, their families, and their survivors for another 40 years. During this 40-year period, they receive benefits, including a monthly salary with annual cost of living increases, full, tax, full health care, and other taxpayer-funded benefits. All in all, we pay them for 60 years to serve for 20 years while not even maximizing their full potential. The Government Accountability Office has questioned whether the, quote, increasingly costly military compensation system would be affordable, sustainable, and physically sound over the long term, end quote, concluding that it is, quote, unlikely, end quote. Unlikely. Based on all the analysis I've seen, coupled with my personal experience and the views of several recent Secretary of Defenses, I reluctantly agree with GAO's assessment. It is not sustainable over the long term. We'll never be able to adequately repay our service members and their families for the continual sacrifices they make on behalf of our country. However, in order to ensure that the all-volunteer force remains viable, DOD must ensure that military pay, benefits, and support are executed in a way that is sustainable for years to come. Senator Talent led a study at the Bipartisan Policy Center with numerous recommendations on how to improve the all-volunteer force in addressing these challenging problems. So there are roadmaps out there available for solving a lot of these ticking time bombs. The fourth ticking time bomb, and the last one I'll cover today, is the reality that we can't build a strong defense on a weak economy. As my dad used to say, quote, when your outgo exceeds your income, your upkeep will be your downfall, end quote. Though not a direct cause of the ever-shrinking fighting force, our uncontrolled $23 trillion deficit and the $300 billion a year we are paying annually as interest on that debt or a threat to our national security as the deficit continues to put downward pressure on all discretionary spending, of which defense is the largest share. Most experts agree we need to get the deficit back under 4% of GDP as soon as possible from the 10% of GDP it is today. This is an issue that requires the efforts of Congress, the executive branch, and another Simpson-Bowles commission. Everything has to be on the table, discretionary spending, entitlements, the number one cause of the deficit, and revenue. 
All of these problems and more are outlined in further detail in my new book, The Ever-Shrinking Fighting Force, along with suggestions for some much-needed reforms. Moving forward, we must demand that our leaders tackle these problems head-on, and we must hold them accountable for the results. The future of our national security depends on it. Thank you very much, and thank you for joining us here today. Welcome back, everyone. We are joined now by former Senator Jim Talent, a good friend and colleague of many years and a respected national security leader and thinker. And of course, General Panaro, we congratulate him again on his book. We were just chatting in the background about how what an excellent resource this book is for leadership in the department and on Capitol Hill. Jim, I wanted to just quickly stop talking for a second and just get your general reactions to the book, which we were just going over, and then, of course, give you the opportunity to ask questions. Over to you. Really outstanding book, not just for the obvious, which General Panaro talked about, the recommendations for reforms, et cetera. But I mean, if people want to understand how, how the Department of Defense is structured and how it got the way it is, this book is the best accessible, it's meaty, but it's accessible read on that subject. I, I think every new member of the Haskins has got to have it. And by the way, General, you only did one thing wrong. Okay, you got to show the book. We have a book launch. So here it is. <laughs> Thank you. We have it. And you got to promise you'll autograph it for me when I see you next. It's, it really is an outstanding effort. I congratulate you on it. And, and Mackenzie, we ought to make a point of telling Hill staff they need to get that book around. Agree. Particularly for the new members. Agree. I'll be highlighting it often in my articles. Thank you. So do we, is this the point at which the general and I get to visit? Yes, please. I know you had a few questions you wanted that, to I don't know if we use, if you use that verb in Georgia, but we do in Missouri. We're, <laughs> we're going to visit a little bit. So, and I'm not going to have enough time to get to what I want to get to. So let me cover what I can. First of all, you do focus a lot on the importance from the spending that the department is doing. And you know correctly that the top line has increased from an inflationary perspective to a point where it's higher than it actually was at the 80s. At the same time, I think it's important to give some context. Defense spending is lower as a percentage of GDP and slightly lower as a percentage of, of the federal budget than it's ever been. So you're not saying that the top line doesn't need to go up. You're saying, if I understand you correctly, that wherever the top line is, we need to spend the money in a way so that we're getting some bang for the buck. Do I understand you correctly in that respect? Absolutely, Senator Talent. Right in the bullseye, your comments. You know, as a young staffer, I've spent my entire adult career trying to increase the resources for national security, right. starting in the Carter administration, when you had a Democratic Senate, a Democratic president, Democratic House, and we were adding money, the Reagan buildup. But the point is, as you pointed out, we need to get more bang for the buck, whatever that top line is. And the Senate Armed Services Committee just recognized that they needed to increase it. $25 billion they added, which is terrific. Right. However, I would point out they still ha had a reduction in the size of the active duty military, the equivalent of two Army Brigade combat teams or a small Marine Corps division. So to me, the challenge is whatever the top line we agree on, and it certainly needs to be in that range of the 3 to 5% to support the new strategy, we've got to get more bang for the buck because China is out purchasing us right now. Right. Focus needs to be, in my view, on how do we make the department run better. If we can do that, then we're going to get the additional savings. 
And I completely look as having been in the Congress all those years and one of the biggest defense spending hawks in Washington, if not the biggest, everybody knows that. It's kind of hard to persuade the colleagues to increase the top line. You know, when the department's spending tens and tens of billions of dollars, say the Army, on future combat systems and ended up with nothing. So, I, you look, I couldn't agree with you more. I do want to get a couple of questions I'm burning to ask you about your leadership structure section. So, as I read it, and again, I'm going to, I'm trying to get the broad takeaways the way I would if I was, you know, still on the SASC and trying to, to learn what I need to know from this book. So what I what I read you saying is that look Goldwater Nichols was a tremendous success from a standpoint of operations. In other words, we it achieved joint operational efficiencies and capabilities in a much shorter period of time than I suspect you and others who midwifed it thought that it ever could. First of all, is that is that basically correct? It's a success from an operational standpoint. Absolutely, Senator. Again, you'd be winning the gold medal at the Tokyo Olympics because you're hitting the bullseye with every one of your shots. Well, I'm supposed to be asking you. I'm going to try and ask, ask you a question. So what is it that the, that you that you would warn the Congress not to do to screw that up? And, and here I'm going to throw something at you from the book. You do suggest in the book, you don't go on a long time about it, that maybe with the service chiefs, should get reinvolved with operational planning. So is that a danger to jointness if if the Congress were to allow that or encourage it? Senator, in my view, it is not. And I think you were right to start with Goldwater Nichols, which in 86 focused on improving the operational chain of command from the commander in chief to the civilian leader of the Pentagon, the SecDef, to the warfighting combatant commanders, strengthen civilian control, increase the role of the chairman, and straighten out all the problems that had occurred previous to that in the operational chain. Mm. What we didn't do and what Congress hasn't done since, we haven't fixed what I would call the management chain of command in the Pentagon. Mm. So here's where we have all these broken processes and we have these layers of bureaucracy. We may have these massive headquarters. And frankly, we've had now 35 years of Goldwater Nichols. These chiefs are as joint as any I've ever seen. I don't think we have to worry about reverting back and in the acquisition process, for example, what we need to do is link the requirements process, the acquisition people that buy the systems, and the budget people that budget for them. They're not hooked up now. The place where they could get linked up would be the service chief, because the service chief is involved in all three of those processes. So I believe, and I think the Congress under uh, Mac Thornberry and John McCain had hinted at that a little bit, but we certainly have got to bite the bullet and make a lot further improvements here, because again, we're spending more than we've ever spent on procurement and R&D, and the outcome is not satisfactory because, again, spend more, take longer, get less. Yeah, I actually love that part of the book in part because I so thoroughly agreed with it. In other words, what we've done over the last 30 years is, is we've given so many different agencies and instrumentalities input into acquisition and programming to the point where now nobody has actual accountability for it. So isn't it isn't it true that let's just take acquisitions? So we have the service chiefs, we have the service secretaries, we have the joint staff, we have the under for for acquisition, uh, logistics and technology, and of course that's been split. And also the co-coms are supposed to have input into acquisition, right. and then we wonder why we get these acquisition disasters. There's no tight chain of authority. Do you agree with that? Yes, sir. And I mean, the good example at Goldwater Nichols on the operational side, when the bombing of the Marine barracks in Beirut that killed more Marines that one day than any other than the World War II battles, 
There were eight layers in the management chain from the colonel on the ground to General Bernie Rogers, who was the UCOM commander at the time. And you just identified, we have all these layers and all these people. Admiral Sandy Winifield, the former vice chairman of the Joint Staff said, look, we've got a thousand people that can say no, and we don't have anybody that can say yes. And so that's gotta be streamlined. And we've gotta, and by the way, if you put the service chiefs back in the middle, you could hold them accountable. So yes. for example, when the V-22 had problems and the Congress was calling the Pentagon on the carpet, and they drug up the Commandant of the Marine Corps, then General Jim Dones, and were beating him up about the problems with the V-22. He said, Senator, I don't have anything to do with it. It's, you know, it's done by, you know, the acquisition bureaucracy. So we've got a whole, you, you mentioned early on about the future combat system. There was over $85 billion of acquisition programs, Comanche, Crusader, Dimers, an IT program, the Expeditionary Fighting Vehicle in the Marine Corps, FCS, that were canceled, the taxpayers and the warfighters got nothing out of it. And guess what? Not one person in the department was ever held accountable for any of those programs that were canceled. Yeah, because nobody, nobody was accountable. In other words, right. we have overlapping Correct. authority. And I'm, I'm going to stick up, and I'm, I'm glad you do, particularly in this context for the service chiefs. I mean, generally speaking, people will even you know blame them when there's some acquisition program that goes wrong on their watch, but we really have pretty systematically disempowered them and the secretary. So is the answer to work towards for acquisition, a tight chain of responsibility, and then they get the authority that goes with the responsibility from the, the service chiefs and secretaries. And you also discuss how they ought to work together. I don't have time to get into that, but I found that fascinating. And then up through the relevant undersecretariats and OSD, who I take it should not be managing the programs, but should simply be overseeing, ensuring they stay on time under budget and coordinating like joint requirements. Is that is that your idea? Absolutely. And guess what, Senator? That's exactly what Dave Packard recommended in 1986 in the Packard Commission. Dave Packard, you know, up in heaven is kind of scratching his head when he looks at this massive bureaucracy and cumbersome system that's been created. He wanted a tight chain of command. So the service chiefs working with the civilian acquisition executives as a team, not in conflict. And when you have 175,000 people alone in the acquisition workforce, of which 35,000 are contracting officials. Right. So 30, so you just like we did for Goldwater Nichols, you've got to streamline that management chain of command. You've got to make sure you know who's responsible and accountable and, and give them the authorities they need. That's really what the Packard Commission recommended. But 35 years later, that's certainly not what we have today. Yeah. You know, I'm conscious of time, so I, I probably ought to move on. But I do want to, the concerns people might raise about this kind of a system is, okay, well, will jointness be represented in the requirements if, if the service chiefs are doing it? What about, you know, the, the war fighters? Should, do we have to have the COCOMs involved in it? And can't we just at some point just say these chiefs now have all, have all been promoted through a jointness culture? Can't we just count on them to work together and to talk to the co-coms? Senator, Title 10 addresses that. When we rewrote Goldwater Nichols, it says the service secretaries and the service chiefs shall organize and train and equip their respective services in support of the requirements of the combatant commanders. So the combatant commanders are the warfighters, and whether it's cyber or space or the Taiwan Straits or the South China Sea, we need to know what are those requirements that we can deter conflict. And if we don't deter it, unfortunately, we have to, we have to win it, you know, and then the, the, the service chiefs and become responsible 
They're the requirements people. The, the military owns the requirements. They're the ones that do, the iron majors are the ones that do all the gold plating. And so they need to get control of that system. They also basically own the budgets with the service secretaries. And so that you need to get in the beginning of the acquisition system, you need to know whether what they want is technically feasible and whether it's affordable. And it's not linked today. So you're exactly right. The streamline accountability, having that one person right in the middle. And by the way, the service chief under Goldwater Nichols reports to the civilian service secretary. So you, you're not, you know, taking away civilian control at all. So I, I would urge the Congress and the department to go back to the way Dave Packard really envisioned this was the way it was supposed to work. The positive message coming out of this to Congress, the executive and the American people is, look, we can have an acquisition system that actually does produce things on a reasonable time schedule that, that meet the needs of our men and women in the military. It's never going to be perfect. But it really can be a lot better if, if, if we have a real chain of command. Okay, very briefly. So, so you make a strong points in the book about that the COCOM, the, the joint billets in the COCOMs have grown far too much. Okay. And you also refer to the fact that some people will even talk about our COCOMs like they're pro, you know, pro councils or, or uh, from the Roman thing. Well, I agree with you. You know, at the same time, I think part of the answer, and I'd love to know what you think about this. I'm not going to go too far down this rabbit hole. I think part of the answer is to reform and reinvigorate the civilian agencies and elements of national power, beginning with the State Department. So would you care to go out of the DOD lane for a minute and just give me your opinion on whether maybe the foreign affairs committees need to try and do a Goldwater Nichols with the State Department? Because a lot of this is, these functions are defaulting to the COCOMs. Yeah. There was, I don't know, they, it's not so much they don't that they really want to do it, but that that we don't have a vigorous or robust enough, you know, civilian element. I'm not blaming the people in the State Department. I'm really not. I think they need more funding, and I, and I think we need to reexamine how they operate. What I, I, I agree with you completely. The, the COCOMs are filling a vacuum. DOD has the resources and DOD has the skilled personnel and they can at a moment's notice assign people where they need them and, and move them immediately. And so the combatant commands over time has grown because they're filling a vacuum. In the world we live in today, you've got to have a whole of government approach. You know, you can't lead with the department in, in the world we live in. You, you really need to lead with a whole of government approach. So I'm 100%. I mean, Jim Mattis, uh, one of our best warfighting generals, uh, Bob Gates. I mean, our secretary's defense have been the most vocal about we need to reinvigorate our State Department, the career foreign service. When, when I was a young staffer and traveled around, these were the primo elite people of our government, along with our military. And, and, and we've lost a lot of that. And so that's why Goldwater Nichols, we basically emphasize joint duty and look at what's happened since. So I, I would urge the foreign affairs committees to do the same thing, the Armed Services Committee. And by the way, it was done over the objection of every single person in the Pentagon, civilian yeah. and military. So don't expect the State Department to welcome this review with open hands, but, but look at the result for our military after Congress took the lead and we need to do this. I mean, China today has more, more embassies around the world than we do. And if you look at their expansion in South and Central America, their expansion in Africa, we can't do all this with the military. Our, our whole of government and our State Department has got to be much more influential and much more engaged. Yeah, and I would, okay, I'm going too far down this rabbit hole. This Jim, is quick question, though, for you. 
Yeah. Can you pass something like that it, where there isn't a Senator McCain today? Is there hope in the Congress that that kind of long-term work could, could get done? Oh, look, I, I really think so. In fact, I think I'm not going to say this kind of thing is obviously it's not easy to pass, but the potential for benefit to the country and for the State Department. I mean, nobody in DOD today wants to go back to pre-Goldwater Nichols times. I mean, there's a lot of discussion about how to reform it and move ahead, et cetera. Uh, I mean, I could. I think if we can hold out this vision to, to our foreign policy community, there's no reason why we can't have the State Department organized globally, similar to uh, the COCOMs, with our leading State Department officials there as having the kind of prestige and visibility. Now, I know we, we have the ambassador system and the rest of it. These are just issues that, that we should be able to discuss and do. I think they require leadership. It, yep. that we need the chairs and the ranking members of the two foreign affairs committees to decide they want to do it. McKenzie, one of the great bipartisan things that exist in the Congress today is the bipartisan recognition and agreement that we've got to deal with China. In China, it's not just militarily, it's diplomatically, it's economically, it's technologically. There was a concept in the old days called the country team, of which the ambassador was the, the head. And you need commerce, you need agriculture, you need the military. They all had to have a seat at the table and you've got to do it globally because it's not just what China's doing in the South China Sea, it's what China's doing in Africa, it's what China's doing in South America. These are under different combatant commanders. and so. The State Department, and, and as you look at the way state is organized and the way defense is organized on the policy side, their foreign policy bureaus don't match up at all, you know, so they, they, they have different responsibilities. So you really need this whole of government country team approach that, frankly, was so effective in the Cold War, and we've just gotten away from it. I want to switch and talk about personnel for a minute. You and I did do the, uh, the task force on personnel with Leon Panetta and Jim Jones, and, and I very much appreciated your contribution to that. I do want to inject, as I did at the beginning of our discussion about other kinds of defense reforms, we do have to recognize, do we not, that an all-volunteer force in 2021 is going to cost a lot more per service member than the force we had in, let's say, 1960, even adjusted for inflation, because and again, tell me if you disagree. Number one, the skills required in a modern, mechanized, technologically superior military are so great. It really isn't any such thing as a grunt anymore, right, as there was at one time. Number two, we're competing with the private sector for highly right. skilled people. And number three, and this is the point, we, and I know you, you understand and believe in this, in the old days, we had a draft force basically of single men. Now we have an all-volunteer force of married men and women who have families, and families cost more money. So, I mean, I don't want anybody in Congress to think that we're all of a sudden going to be able to cut in half the cost per service member, because we're probably not going to be able to do that, right? You're absolutely not, and we shouldn't. We have to take into account the family, and, you know, you recruit the soldier and you retain the family, mm -hmm. and the, the child care system is essential. It's essential in the, in the modern business world as well, so we're no different in the military. Helping spouses that basically have to move when the militaries move to different bases to have meaningful jobs and positions. But the other thing, though, is we can do what you say because it is skills that we need, cyber, space. 
but the pay system right now is just based on how long you've been in and what your rank is. And Tom Gates, when he did the, when they recommended to Nixon to get rid of the volunteer force, they said the volunteer force would not be sustainable over the long term if you didn't make three changes. Change the pay and benefit system from time and grade and longevity to skills and performance. So you recruit and pay people based on their skills and how they perform. Also, you've got to get rid of the upper out promotion system where we take our best people and we, we push them out at, at, at 20 years. Or if you don't get promoted, you get pushed out. And of course, the bipartisan policy, your task force you led had some excellent recommendations on how to make the system more flexible. Look, everybody's debating today, how do we keep our people in a post-COVID environment? We can't make them come to work seven days a week, 10 hours a day anymore. We need to do the same thing in the military. Our personnel systems need to move more flexibly. And finally, Gates said unequivocally, if you don't get rid of the cliff retirement system, you can't sustain it. And sure enough, 75% of the people, you know, don't ever earn the 20-year retirement. Of the 25% that do, 75% of them leave at career year 23 or less. The enlisted retired average age 43, the officer average age 45, life expectancy is now 84. So we pay them for 60 years to serve for 20 years with full benefits. And now we have more, a million more retirees than we have people serving on active duty. So we don't want to cut the pay and benefit for the all-volunteer force. We want to actually give more benefits to people that are currently serving where the reforms have to occur is in the deferred compensation for the people no longer serving and break break everybody needs to be grandfathered we're not going to retroactively change anything but it's just like right now on the deficit you made the point you know to me over the years defense is not why we have a big deficit the entitlements are why we have the big deficits and particularly in healthcare. so these things have got to be reformed over the long term, not just for the military, but for the sake of our own economic well-being in the country. So these are bullets that are tough to bite, but we've got to bite them because, again, I've said, again, tongue in cheek, you know, General Motors didn't start out to be a healthcare company that occasionally built an automobile. Now they fix a lot of that. We don't want the Department of Defense to turn into a benefits company that occasionally kills a terrorist. But well, that's and, the trend line we're on today. Right. And General, the Blue Star families, Kathy Roth Duquette, was right. one of the co-chairs of our task force and fully joined in what we proposed. I mean, the families are not pleased with the system the way it is. And, and for exactly the kind of reasons that you mentioned, the promotion, the assignment paths do not reflect either the needs of families as families, nor the aspirations of the service members and, and their sense, which is usually right, about how they can best contribute to the service over time. And as for up and up or, or as for the cliff requirement, so it's not fair to people who don't serve 20 years, and it's not fair to the service. What kind of a system says to somebody in their early 40s when they're just hitting the peak of their right. productivity? Well, basically, the way we've structured the system, it's almost financially impossible for you to stay rather than retire. I mean, it just doesn't make any sense. So let me leap to what was because it's probably the hardest question. So how do we get on a path towards this? I mean, one of the things we said in our, in our it was my gut on our task force. And I think, you know, we said this as a general comment in the report that set aside the retirement, let's do promotion for a second and recruiting that maybe if we start with the newer services and, you know, cyber or the, or the newer commands and the places where it's obvious, I mean, you can't recruit a cyber warrior by getting an 18 or 19 year old 
right? And you got to get these people out of Silicon Valley and out of advanced programs and with packages and the rest of it. Is that the way to do this, you think, to to start outside of what the services see as their core sort of missions? You know, so we won't start with the fighter pilots in the Air Force. We'll start with... Absolutely. And in General Hyten, the vice chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, gave a talk the other day just about this. I mean, I, I know it from personal experience from, from chairing the Reserve Forces Policy Board, but also my youngest son, Dan, is a captain in the Army Reserve, and he's got both the Signal MOS and the new Cyber MOS, but he works at a cutting-edge, high-technology Silicon Valley company, and he brings to his reserve duties. And by the way, in the Cyber Force, once it takes four or five years to really train the active duty, once they're trained, they only have like a year left on their enlistment, and they're going to go out into the private sector. They're not going to stay. So we've got to have more flexible, and, and we could really maximize the use of the Guard and Reserve in cyber because they're working for some of the cutting-edge Silicon Valley companies. You can't, but, you know, our military, they want everybody on active duty, and they want everybody sitting right outside their door, and so they've got to change that. In the business world today, the, the new employees coming up in the generations they want more flexibility and they're not going to work for your company if you don't basically have that kind of flexibility. We desperately need that in the military today. Let's say you're, you're a major and you've been in for set 15 years and all of a sudden you have a family issue and you really need to spend a couple of years taking care of your family, but you know if you leave the military, you're going to lose your place in line. Well, we ought to accommodate things like that. We ought to let people come in and out. We ought to make it easier for people to flow between the active duty guard and reserve. Because again, when people retire at the 20 year point or one or two years after that, you, you made the point, they're the most productive, most experienced. We ought to keep them for another 15 years. In 86, we changed the retirement to just do that and grandfathered everybody for 20 years. But within two years of when it was gonna go into effect, our active duty military came in and opposed it and said, oh my God, this is awful. People that retire are gonna make less than the people that retired and Congress changed it back. So we lost that advantage. We have got to make some fundamental changes in our personnel management systems. Yeah, I think, um, your universal appointment recommendation is spot on. I think Jim has thought about that also over the years in his commissions in various commission capacities, Jim, including in 2010. This right. is an idea that came up in the QDR independent panel. Quick inter interjection, Senator Talent. I want to ask, we have several questions and then I'm going to return back to Senator Talent. The first is from our, our colleague, David Berteau at the Professional Services Council. He asks General Panaro, you say you've never seen as joint a set of service chiefs, which may be true operationally, but do you also think it's true for budgets and programs, for requirements, and the trade space between today, readiness, and tomorrow, research and development? Well, as always, a, a very insightful question from our wonderful colleague, Dave Berteau, who we've worked with over the years and leads one of our other great associations. I think we've got to count on the people, as Jim Talent has said, these are honorable people, these are highly experienced people, and, and they're going to have to rise to the occasion. We've never faced a threat like, I, I think the threat from China, because it's multidimensional, again, it's economic, it's technological, it's not just militarily, and, and it's diplomatic. We've not faced that before. The leaders in our military are going to have to get over the bureaucratic stuff and get over the parochialism, and they can do it because I really do believe, like I say, the people come to work in the Pentagon every day to do the very best job they can for our warfighters and our taxpayers. We've just got to get the bad processes out of the way. They've just got to basically bite the bullets, and the Congress has to let them bite the bullets. 
The Congress has been one of the biggest impediments to reforms that Secretary of Defenses have brought over there. Even our most powerful Secretaries of Defenses have brought reforms and Congress just refuses to go along with them. They won't let them retire any of the old legacy systems. They won't do, you know, the, the commissaries, the, it's, you know, the grocery chain that loses $1.4 billion a year and Congress won't even let the Pentagon study it. And so you start adding all this up, yeah, it's gonna be uh, politically charged. Yeah, it's gonna be emotional. But again, if we don't start biting these bullets, you know, China's on the march. There was a book written about the attack on Pearl Harbor called At Dawn We Slept. And the book talked about all the warning signs that our leaders should have seen about what the Japanese were gonna do. Well, look, we don't need a that dawn we slept. We are seeing the warning signs today. We see them. They are absolutely out there. We need to act on them. So my question to you two both, at least three commissions have come up today. Packard, Gates, Simpson-Bowles, all different purposes and different times. Jim, let me start with you. Is that one of the solutions here? Do we broaden the next National Defense Strategy Commission to ask them to take on the bureaucracy, you know, this, this, all of the ticking time bombs in General Panaro's book? Is that too much? Is that, how do you, I, I mean, putting aside the congressional angle that we talked about, like a, a broader US government-wide sort of Goldwater-Nichols whole of government approach to better reform the Defense Department. Is a commission the answer? What would you do if you were king for a day? Well, first of all, let me stick up a little bit for the Congress. And I understand why General Panaro just said what Congress won't let people do. And I get it. And there are instances where they needed to summon up, in fact, in general, to summon up the political will to do things. It's a hard thing when, because the force is so small, we've got people going back five, six, seven times in tours of duty yep. to, then, to then go home and explain to them that you voted to cut the commissary subsidy a little bit. I mean, it's, it's a hard thing. I think, and this answers your question, Mackenzie. I think if the bipartisan leadership of the two authorization committees really believed that an effort like this would make the department substantially more effective, more accountable, if it would produce better personnel and better platforms over time, I think they'll take considerable risks and I think they'll go to considerable efforts. And I, I really think rather than a commission, although heck, Arnold and I'll serve on it. I mean, <laughs> they've got plenty of ideas out there. I really think if, if this is a case where they need to sit down and say, we can do this. And they and a couple of years ago, they held all these great hearings and took some good steps. So no, I, I don't think we need another commission. I think we have the ideas. I think they need to focus on the areas where they're the biggest productivity gains. And it's why I asked the general about acquisitions and about personnel. That's platforms and people. If we fix that acquisition process and we can really get the department to change its personnel processes over time, General, I think we, you know, I think we're three quarters of the way there with those two things. And then if we, if the COCOM billets are a little bit too big, we can live with that, you know? No, yet, Senator, you're, that, you're exactly right. That's where the money is. You, you've hit the nail on the head. The, the, the fully burdened personnel costs and the acquisition costs, the two of them together, that's where all the money is. And that's, that's where the capability, and that, in other words, if, right. if we're trying to make the department run better, what makes any enterprise run better? People? 
right? And then, of course, the inventories and the technology that they use, people and processes. I mean, so, and I think a lot of it, McKenzie, is probably just convincing them, you know, this can really be done. It's probably a two-year effort and focused on those areas. Well, General Panaro, and, and the la- you're going to, of course, have the last word, but in your book, you know, you, you reference this point that staffers today, are, I think, are having a different experience than you had. For example, we've looked at it at AEI where the de- defense policy bill was like one page and then it was 50 pages and now it's multi-thousand pages. And the staffers are basically mini program managers, program executive officers. You know, they're incredibly in the weeds. I had a Marine tell me yesterday, the professional staffers on the Hill know the Marine Corps better than Marines, which is not what I wanted to hear. So do you agree with Senator Talent? You know, are the good ideas out there and we don't need the commission? We just need the staffers to elevate to the bigger ideas? I I think he's right. And I think we need the Congress to focus on macro management, not micro management. We're drowning in budget details. The Budget Committee, the Authorizing Committee, and the Appropriation Committee, they need to get away from the detailed examination of program elements, and they need to do the kind of oversight Senator Talent was talking about, Get hear firsthand what these problems are, and, when, and that's exactly what happened in Goldwater Nichols. It took two years, but when the members of the committee on both sides of the aisle truly understand the nature of the problem, as Russell Long used to say, don't solve a problem for people before they know they have one. Once they do that, I think he's right. I think they will act because in their heart of hearts, they, they really, they want to do the right thing, but they've got to focus on the big picture. Well, let's hope, hear, hear, sir. And let's hope they use your, your book as a blueprint, as a starting point for that legislation. I, I've taken notes. I'll send it to the Hill to appoint you two as the first commissioners, if there is indeed a commission, but otherwise we can just go to your great body of work, including the ever-shrinking fighting force. I extend my congratulations to you again on a tremendous piece of work that will contribute, I think, greatly to positive changes in national security going forward. Thank you, Senator Talent, for joining us today, and thank you to our audience for attending this event. Thanks for listening to the AEI Events Podcast. You can find new episodes each week on your favorite podcast apps. Please remember to subscribe and leave a review. We'll see you next week.